Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I'm very excited about our guest today because he has been through every single, um, I would say, part of the life cycle of building, financing, scaling, and, and then also exiting a business. So without further ado, Rick Stolmeyer, welcome to the show today. Thank you, Alejandro. It's great to be here. So you studied integrated technology and political science. What an interesting combination. What was the reasoning behind this? I, was, I went to the U.S. Naval Academy, and uh, that's in Annapolis, Maryland, and uh, it's a training ground for naval officers. And I, uh, everyone at that university gets a, a general engineering degree, and uh, you can choose a major. And I wanted a major that helped me understand the complexities of international relations and geopolitics since uh, I would be serving as an officer in the U.S. Navy as an extension of that. So I was able to, um, at the time, you know, the Cold War was still going on, and I was able to study uh, uh, the principles of uh, Leninism and Marxism, uh, the history of, the, of, of Russia and the Soviet Union, uh, China. Um, I minored in Russian language. So it was an opportunity really to round out my education. So, but I graduated, became a submarine officer, and that's a graduate degree in nuclear engineering, equivalent. And after that, I, I actually got my professional engineering license after I left the service. So I was a, I'm a licensed uh, mechanical engineer. Really cool. And all of that was perfect preparation to start a yoga software company. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. But, but let's keep there on the, um, on the you, you were a submarine officer and this was for about six years. So how was this experience for you? It was a remarkable experience. It taught me so much. It, it really shaped my character enormously. Um, you know, uh, a crew of a submarine is doing something uh, really complex and really difficult. It requires a high level of mental discipline to to truly understand uh, the depth of a topic and, and a, a very complex systems. I think a nuclear submarine is one of the most complicated things ever built by humankind, certainly on par with uh, spacecraft. And uh, And so... Everyone on there's there's nobody on that ship that is a that is a wasted person. Everybody has an important job, and the officer's job first and foremost is to learn every system in the ship from end to end, so that we are one day capable um, of being a captain of that ship. And so, 
uh, it taught me that. It taught me uh, how important leadership principles. Um, the officers at a very young age, you know, I was 20, I was just about to turn 24 when I made it to the ship. And uh, I was uh, put in charge of, uh, of 13 uh, men uh, whose job it was, the first group that I supervised called a division was electricians who manage all of the, all the electrical generation, storage and distribution systems on the ship. After that, the reactor controls group that literally operates and keeps safe this nuclear reactor. After that, um, I went up forward and uh, was a sonar officer. And so those systems, so you, you learn how to absorb information very quickly and you learn some important principles of leadership in a, in a very high consequence environment. Got it, got it. And also those submarines are, are, are quite complex and also quite expensive. I saw that they go up for 1.5 billion. Is that yeah. right? At the time, the ship I was on was the USS Chicago, SSN 721. So it was a Los Angeles class, fast attack nuclear submarine. I remember reading that the ship had cost $700 million. This was in the late 80s. And I thought that was an unbelievable amount of money. Um, yeah, it's uh, it, wildly expensive to operate these. And, and as it turned out, I was, I was in the, on the ship when the Soviet Union fell. Um, and when, Yelt, when Boris Yeltsin climbed on top of that tank and, uh, in Moscow and, and waved the, new, the Russian flag, and our biggest concern was that there would be breakaway groups who had access to nuclear weapons. And so I think it's a modern miracle that the Soviet Union fell peacefully that there were never never shots fired and there certainly was never any kind of war. And I think there were a lot of a lot of unsung heroes that people will never know about that ensured that to be the case. Got it, got it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then and then after this um, this time as a submarine officer, then you go to Comet for a few years. But why did you decide to to leave this career? Uh, because six years is quite a bit and then go into Comet. Well, there were really two reasons. Uh, first, first and foremost, the impact on a personal life is that you're gone for, for months at a time. And I knew I wanted to start a family. I'd come from a large family and that was an important value to me. And the second reason was rather interesting. And that is, I realized that in my most joyous moments, I was actually creating something new. And uh, like, for example, uh, we actually ran a, a, a ship store that funded our, uh, our morale and welfare and recreation fund. And so it was like a, running a business. And as we would have, we would come into ports, we would allow tourists to come on board the ship and, and tour it. And we would sell them things like, like uh, t-shirts and ball caps and belt buckles. Anyway, I quadrupled the size of that business uh, because I like, as soon as you gave me this business, I'm gonna grow it. And and that helped me remind me is like that was actually got a commendation for my running of this sort of ancillary thing, and I realized you know what maybe my best gifts aren't uh, in being a military officer. In fact, my, maybe my best gifts relate back to business. And I was raised in a small business family, and uh, found real joy in that. So uh, that that translated later to the decision after I, I left the Navy, um, worked for a while in, in various civilian um, private sector engineering roles. Um, well, commercial nuclear power for a short while and realized that wasn't the career I wanted. And then in space launch um, out at Vandenberg Air Force Base here in California. Got That's it. what moved me to the California Central Coast. 
And that was MCA engineers? That's right. That's right. And yeah. so we were a, a government contractor also selling our services, our uh, engineering and support services to, uh, to the various entities that were launching spacecraft out there. So it's Lockheed Martin and Orbital Sciences, uh, Boeing. And, and I learned again that I really loved the, the idea of building a business. And I, and I tripled the size of that contract through effectively business development. So even though it was a government contractor, there was an opportunity to develop new lines of business. And once again, we um, got this confirmation. And I'll never forget this because I, I, it's in, in government contracting, there are, MC Engineers was a small business. I, I had half of the employees of MC Engineers working for me, about 170 people. And, and I went to the, the founder, CEO of the business, and I said, you know, I'd really, uh, I'm really enjoying this. I think I can grow this for you a lot more, but I'd really like to have a, you know, a piece of the pie. I'd like to have some ownership in the business. And uh, he just wasn't okay with that. And, uh, you know, had he, had he uh, said yes to me, I would have made that guy a lot of money. Because I was, I was just always one of those spark plugs. Anything I see, I'm going to improve and grow. And so I, at the same time, my old friend from high school started writing software for yoga, Pilates, and spinning studios. And, and this is late 90s. And he educated me on the market and said, you know, I think I'm onto something here. And I, and I think that you know, at the time he had nine customers in LA and San Francisco. And I'm looking for a partner. And he, he, was, he was asking me if I knew someone. And so I, I went out and visited a couple of his customers and I just fell in love with the market. I realized there was a transformational shift happening in fitness right, from right. the big box health club model to this boutique fitness model, which is a very, requires a very different operating system that nobody was meeting their needs. And we both felt this industry would grow massively. And so I went back to him and I said, well, how about me? And uh, I thought he was shocked, but he just told me recently, it was only a few years ago, he said, you know what? I always was aiming for you. That's what I wanted. And I was hoping you would come back to me with that answer. So, so we became business partners in 2000, in, the, in October of 2000. I started taking paid time off and, and I bought my own laptop and driving up to San Francisco and down to LA and calling on yoga, Pilates and spinning studios and realized I could in fact sell this software. And uh, at the same time, became immersed in the industry and took a lot of classes. And I just fell in love with these people. These are grassroots entrepreneurs who are leaving the relative safety of a job. They're committing most or all of their net worth. They probably are taking seconds out on their homes, borrowing money from mom and dad and friends and family, spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to build out a space, signing a multi-year lease that they personally guarantees, which means if that business fails, they lose everything. And then opening all for the purpose of hanging up their shingle and, and being Mary's yoga studio or, uh, you know, Jim's workout. And this resonates with me, with my family, my grandfather, my father, three of my four brothers, all small business owners. And that was really what connected to me. The idea that we could take technology and solve problems of these grassroots entrepreneurs who are actually going to make the world a healthier place. To me, that felt like a worthy endeavor, and it connected to my purpose-driven attitude. The reason I, I volunteered to, to serve in the Navy, and the reason that I took great reward from that, and a job that doesn't pay very well and demands way too much of individuals, way more than business does. The reason I, I uh, did that is because I hungered for being part of something bigger than myself. 
And I found that in the wellness movement, and specifically in boutique wellness, small business owners delivering something that is transformational. Got it. Got it. So then my body obviously is born and this starts out of your garage. So uh, what were some of those early days like? You know, at the time it was, it was simultaneously thrilling and terrifying. And uh, I remember the very first day that, you know, I, I, I gave notice on my job. I gave a nice long notice because I didn't want to burn bridges. You know, who knows what's going to happen with a startup. And so I gave him 60 days notice. And then I planned a vacation with my wife. We went down to Cabo because I thought, I don't know when I'm ever going to be able to, to take a vacation again. Uh, it's going to be a long time. Got back uh, right around Christmas, had the Christmas holiday. Um, there's a picture of Blake and I on January 1st, 2001. So we had a New Year's party at our house. He and I on a, on a 101 that was the official start of Mind Body. And uh, I woke up uh, on January 2nd after everybody left. And I sat down in my garage and I looked at my computer and I was instantly terrified. I thought, oh my God, what have I done? I have three kids. I've just committed. I, I took a second on my house and I'd committed most of those funds to this business. And I was terrified. And there was a moment I literally just got, actually, I, I, I pushed away the mouse, went and got in my car and went for a drive. And there's this great song by the, the Youngbloods called uh, Get Together. And the song says, you know, we hold, we hold the key to love and fear in our hand. And, and in other words, we make that choice. The opposite of love isn't hate. The opposite of love is fear. And that I had to set aside this fear and get back to the love, the love for the, the, the customers, the love for the idea of building something um, that mattered. And after that, I never looked back. So uh, quickly realized, well, I, I, the, the original plan was Blake's going to build the software and I'm going to sell it. And not long after that, I uh, realized, oh, wait a minute, they keep calling me because they need help. These are, these are small business owners. They're not techies. And even if we write the software perfectly, this is such a robust solution. They're going to want to talk to us. So I uh, started hiring people at Cal Poly, from Cal Poly, to initially to do tech support. We got some really smart computer science uh, students and recent grads who helped us with the coding. And we started building a team in my garage. At its peak in 2003, we had six people in the garage, a couple of people working out of their homes, and Blake was down in L.A. Oh. And uh, you know, in the morning, I'd come downstairs, and there was a uh, Cal Poly student, Margot Broker, who was uh, an engineering major, who would come in at 6 a.m. to do their early morning tech support in the garage, and it was cold, so she'd be like wrapped up in a in this huge uh, sleeping bag, um, and uh, with like a wool cap on, doing in a headset, doing tech support for our customers on the East Coast, and uh, almost immediately we started gaining customers overseas. And we weren't prepared for that. Uh, in October of 2001, a, uh, this guy calls me with an English sounding accent. I realized later, I learned later he was a Kiwi, New Zealand, and said, I'd like to buy your software. And uh, so I walked him through the, the features and the, the options and built the purchase order. I said, where, where do you want me to ship the CD? And he said, Hong Kong. So I thought I thought he was pulling my leg. I had to figure out how to ship a CD to Hong Kong. Um, 
and how that would clear customs. So by the way, we shipped it to his house. That's how we cleared customs. Uh, and uh, it was a personal package. And, and we had a customer in Hong Kong. Well, that customer became Pure Yoga, the largest chain of yoga studios uh, in the Pacific Rim. And a huge brand. And one of our top 50 customers today out of 65,000 businesses. So what happened there, and this is an important insight, when one of, there are many benefits to being vertically focused. And it's so many people told me that we were doing the wrong thing. We, should, we, should, we were aiming too narrow. You know, this sounds niche it's small. You know, what is, how you need to broaden your field. You know, if you're building point of sale and scheduling software, CRM software, how many other business types are there out there that could benefit? The answer is, you know, millions. Yeah. I vertically focused. Because first and foremost, one of the key benefits of a vertical software business is that you can rather quickly tap into a global audience, assuming that vertical transcends national borders. And so we found in our first year, we had a customer in Asia, in Hong Kong. With, by the end of the second year, we had, we had multiple customers in, um, in the Pacific Rim, including Australia and New Zealand, and we had customers in uh, the UK. By the end of the third year, we had multilingual customers, and we had to put in capabilities that would support them in Spain, uh, France. Germany, um, as well as uh, multiple Asian countries like uh, Taiwan and uh, uh, Thailand. And so we were getting pulled internationally before we were ready. So that's a huge opportunity. And, and one of the mistakes we made was thinking, well, if it was that easy to get our first early adopters in these countries, then we ought to be able to become mainstream in these countries very quickly. And this is the next insight. That's not true because the early adopters in any market are people that tolerate product market fit discrepancy, i.e., in this case, obviously localization and internationalization of the software. And so we actually, years later, pulled back from that and said, let's stop trying to, let's stop selling software in far flung countries where we don't have a complete full product. And we have narrowed our focus to what we call the English eight, which is U.S., Canada, U.K., Ireland, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, Hong Kong. These all have high per capita income, very thriving wellness industries, and uh, over 300,000 businesses in our target market. So here we sit, we are even today with a $300 million run rate, we only have 65,000 businesses. So while it may sound good to say, yeah, you know, we're selling software in Lima, Virginia, Rio, uh, the, the reality in Madrid, uh, and the reality is that's going to diffuse the efforts of that business. And so we become much more uh, focused now on this, and that focus has accelerated our business. Every time we focus down again, I, I use the metaphor of a light, a beam of light, the light is diffuse doesn't cause much impact, but if you narrow the focus far enough, it becomes a laser, blow holes through steel. And so being laser-like focused is so important. And so we will enter the other markets. By the way, in the meantime, they're still inbound. So yes, we have inbound coming in from all over the world. We actually have customers in over 90 countries, but our market share in those non-English countries is very small. 
as we add countries back into our target market, we're going to do so very deliberately. We'll start with a product first approach and make sure that we're bringing forth a product that meets the needs for the majority of the market before we allow our sales and marketing team to start starting outbound efforts. Got it. Got it. So, so uh, let me ask you this, Rick. At what point, because obviously the, the, you really had this laser focus mentality, the business was growing. So at what point did you decide to raise capital? So we were able to, to bootstrap the business from 2001 all the way through to, um, to 2004. And the, the, in, we, and in 2004, we decided to fundamentally change our business model, or at least I don't think we quite realized how much it was going to change our business model when we decided to go to a SaaS model. And, you know, this was, I'd never heard the acronym SaaS, software as a service. And, you know, clouds were puffy things in the sky. But one thing had become clear, we had this on-prem solution that, um, was operating from PCs and, you know, you could have two or three PCs networked together in a, in a LAN in a, inside of a small business. And then we could use the internet to synchronize data up to a web server where we could offer, we could serve up an HTML form that links to the business's website so they could do real-time online booking. And uh, that's a lot of moving parts. It was complex. It was breaking a lot. We were, uh, we were remoting into computers, to our customers' computers around the world while they were closed to fix uh, uh, software problems. To uh, a, a database would corrupt. These are replicated, synchronizing databases. It would corrupt. We'd have to, we came really good at, at file transferring, SFTPing down a, a fresh copy of the database, doing an append query, and then restarting the sync. And by the time we got to, to uh, early 2004, it became abundantly clear that business wasn't going to scale. We had about 400 customers at that point. And, uh, you know, I went to Blake and said, you know, this, we've got to change this up. The, the web scheduler is the software. Web scheduler actually has access to the entire database. So why don't we just reverse engineer the desktop software capabilities into the web? Let's make a point of sale system. Let's let's build all the reports. Let's build a class check-in. Let's build a, a the CRM functionality because we've got the data. And uh, problem with that approach was that I was killing his baby, and he had he had spent you know four years of blood, sweat, and tears building this product. Actually, more remember he started before I did, so it was more like six years, and he was deeply emotionally invested in it. And it was another key insights. You know, it, once in a while, there are like these amazing unicorn people that, that are the coders and they're the great business strategy folks, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and Bill Gates, those guys. But, but there really are the outliers. In the vast majority of the cases, it's two very distinctly different personality types. And I think not being emotionally invested in the product was an advantage for me. And so it, it created for a while a rift between us. In fact, uh, our, our partnership uh, broke up. He left and, and for several years and, and a new partner came in, Bob Murphy, who, who bought him out and who believed in the vision of, the, of an online software. So we rolled that software out. We, we developed it in 2004. We beta tested it. 
first time in January of 05 at Yoga Works in Santa Monica. And we were watching these uh, classes of 50 and 60 people checking in on our web software. And it was running faster than the desktop software. I mean, and in my mind's eye, I'm like visualizing these queries are going across the internet, back to our servers, hundreds of miles away, and returning uh, and reloading the page faster than the desktop software could communicate with a tower that was beneath the desk that was a few feet away. And uh, I realized, oh my God, this is going to work. And so we launched it as MindBody Online in February of 05. And I had, I had uh, one of the things I, I know accounting. So I had, I had set up the original business accounting. In the early days, I set up our QuickBooks Pro. And I, uh, I heard about QuickBooks Online in 2003. And I was an early adopter of QuickBooks Online. And the early versions were really rough and you know, slow and bulky. And, but it was, a, it was a breakthrough that you could use. I could access my, quick, my books you know, on vacation. I could go to a friend's house and log in via their PC or, or Mac. It didn't matter. Um, and so that taught me the power of, of an online web-hosted system like that. And so we called it MindBody Online. Not, not very original thinker, I guess. Uh, QuickBooks Online, okay, MindBody Online. My thought was, uh, if we call it something fancier or more abstract, our customers won't get it. We need to make it very simple. So long answer to a short question, when we launched MindBody Online in February of five, we thought there would be a gradual adoption curve. You know, innovators, early adopters, opting into MindBody Online, and then the mainstream customers still buying the traditional on-prem software. And we were utterly wrong. We had com we completely annihilated our on-prem software business overnight. We disrupted ourselves. We went from selling 50 licenses, perpetual licenses a month, which is you know roughly at the time that. We was, we were earning about two thousand dollars per license. That's a nice little business. Yeah. Um, and to selling hundred and fifty subscriptions, so we tripled the rate of customer acquisition overnight, and we annihilated our revenue flow. So I had to get really good at raising capital. It was like, woohoo! We've created something breakthrough. It's going to work. And oh crap, we're about to go broke. Because and what was the the price per subscription, Rick? At the time, sixty five dollars. Got it. So a big difference from from 2000 to 65. For That's sure. right. Long term, a much better model. You know, a much more valuable business. Obviously, we don't have to make that case anymore. But at the time, this was really a breakthrough. There were very few SaaS businesses. I mean, QuickBooks Online had hardly disrupted QuickBooks uh, Desktop. I mean, it was only a small fraction of the user base, and Salesforce was still a small company. And so, yeah, this idea was still quite novel. And I, and I think because I wasn't a software professional, because I'm not a coder by trade, and I'd learned how to code in college, but it's not my, not my unique ability. I, I like to say I didn't know enough to know that it wouldn't work because lots of experts told me it wouldn't work. And I just sort of saw through it in a different way. And uh, darned if it didn't work. And so that was transformational and, and it changed business. So I started raising money immediately. I raised a first. The first round of fundraising was was friends and family, and we got in a couple hundred thousand dollars just to keep the lights on. Uh, and by the way, uh, the friends and family include my parents and two of my brothers. Uh, my brother just sold his last shares in the acquisition. Uh, well, obviously, the 
the Thanksgiving dinners were more like a shareholders get together. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And <laughs> yeah. I think in the early years, both my that brother, both my brothers and my dad thought, well, you know, what the heck? I'll probably never see this. They're writing me fifteen thousand dollar checks, or in my dad's case, it was a thirty thousand check. And uh, they don't have a lot of money. You know, I don't come from much money in our family, and and uh, in fact, I offered a chance to pay them back um, when we subsequently raised capital, raised a million dollars from the Pasadena and Tech Coast Angels. And uh, one brother said, yeah, I'll take the money back. My dad and my other brother said, ah, let it ride. And again, I don't think they thought they were going to make anything out of it. Uh, they yeah. ended up being quite, quite good for my dad, my mom and dad's. That really gave my mom and dad for retirement. And my brother, it's, you know, he held on to most of his shares until literally last month. And, and so that feels really good. I, I, I really love making money for my investors. It feels good to me. I, I've met other entrepreneurs that don't quite have that point of view. You know, they, they're thinking in terms of a zero-sum game, and they're thinking in terms of the pie is only so so big. And if I give up too much to my investors, then I'm going to get diluted, and uh, you know, my outcome won't be as great. A wise mentor said to me, um, in 2005, one of the one of the angels that ended up being has become a very close friend said, "Rick." Um, Nobody ever went broke deluding themselves. And, and the point stuck with me because I had to decide, am I running a small business? Am I creating a small business or am I creating a big business? And, and, and if I'm creating a big business and the, the potential future of this business is literally infinite, I mean, it's only constrained by our ability to, to execute on the opportunity and our, our our talent and uh, and our imagination, and so realizing a seemingly infinite future. No, I did not realize a 1.9 billion market cap. That wasn't something I even dreamed of. I was probably thinking, you know, a couple hundred million would be an amazing market cap, and if I could just own a few percent of that, then I'm going to be all right. And uh, well, it turned out a little better than that. And Absolutely. So, I will and talk so, about that in a in yeah. a little bit. But how much did you raise for the business before you did the IPO? A hundred million. It actually worked out. Yeah, and I got a little bit of a uh, liquidity because I was able to pay off some debts and things. So, so and also some early investors were, you know, got it was a some of that was recapitalization. So net into the business was actually like high eighties, like eighty eight million. Got it. Um, got it. And then the IPO was a, was another hundred million net of costs. About 92 million. Then we did a follow-on offering of 130 million the following year, and then the year after that, we uh, this past year we did a convertible note of uh, over 300 million. So, right. you know, the ability to raise capital as a public company is the number one advantage. The liquidity of your stock is the number two advantage. But for the entrepreneur, or particularly for the CEO. Um, it is not a liquidity event. Your your capital is locked inside the business, and you can sell tiny bits of it. In what's called a 10B51 plan, where you decide uh, essentially a year in advance, a couple of quarters in advance. You, you come up with a plan that says, you know, sell off a little bit on these predefined dates. Doesn't matter if the stock got hammered. Doesn't matter if the stock's high. And so, it's it's kind of like sucking through a very small straw. 
And, you know, for me, I had been at it for a long time. You know, how many, I, how many years, how many years? Well, so we were public in 2015. So, you know, I'd been at it for 15 years. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, in, in each of the, and we would have public investors, I would have them challenge me that I was selling my own stock. I mean, don't you believe in your company, Rick? And, uh, you know, I've got like 90, 98% of my net worth is in the stock of my company, which is extremely right. volatile. And yeah. I'm in my fifties now and I've got kids in college. What do you, what kind of question? <laughs> you know? I totally get it. I totally yeah. get it. So for all you public investors who want to critique uh, <laughs> public CEO selling them stock, uh, I've got rich words for you anyway. Got it. So, so let me ask you this, uh, Rick. So now you are uh, running the show on a on a public company. How was how how was it challenging? Would you say for you to adapt, let's say, your leadership and, and management skills to the to this business that was incredibly growing from private to public? I mean, how was it for you as a leader and, and a manager too? Going public was thrilling for me. I mean, even though we actually had a rough IPO, and I'll talk about that in a second, I just kind of weirdly love challenges. I love doing hard things and it's really hard. I love the stand and deliver moments where you're either in front of a, an individual who is considering investing or uh, a, a group of people and the IPO roadshow is a blend of both. And I love that moment when you could see it in their eyes, when they see a shift of now they've gone from skepticism or neutral to, okay, I get it. and you know, it's classically you're in this meeting and depending on who they are, they're either writing with a pen on a pad or they're, they're on their little uh, iPad. They're tapping away while they're talking to you. So rarely making a lot of eye contact, right? And there would be this magic moment where, where the person would, would kind of like set down their pen or take their hands off the keyboard and look up at you. And I could see it in their eyes. They got it. And I'd walk out of that meeting and I was like, that guy's they're going to put in a, they're going to put in a bid, put in a, uh, ask for an allotment. And, and more often than not, that would be the, the case. So I love that. You know, it's, it's a form of selling and I am so passionate about this business. I love talking about it and, uh, the effect on mind, body's brand in our, in our stature in the world went up substantially. So there's a lot of benefit to going public. And one more point, my wife was just saying this last night, you know, reflecting on how much discipline it created in our organization. Because you're venture back, and you know, you're and you're getting these huge investor checks in the bank, um, and it's pedal to the metal, grow, grow, grow. Nobody really cares about the bottom line. In fact, we would never talk about the bottom line, and <laughs> I rarely, I rarely looked at it uh, through a, you know, a gap. Lens, like not at all. Like I couldn't have told you what our gap top uh, loss was prior to the IPO prep. When we were public, we were losing 30% of revenue. And uh, and that was part of the reason why our IPO reception wasn't great. Uh, the markets shift, they swing back and forth between um, loving fast growth companies that, oh, by the way, are also burning cash and losing money on a uh, gap basis on a non-gap basis, uh, to, to be becoming more risk-off. risk, of, risk off. And then these, those kind of businesses get punished. So 
if you're going to go public losing money, you'd better have one hell of a coast. And yeah. so a good way to think about it is the rule of 40. And rule of 40 says if your growth rate plus your EBITDA or pre cash flow, which is typically similar, is at least 40, then you've got a great story. So if you're losing 10% on EBITDA, you better be growing north of 50. You know, look at Lyft. Lyft has just filed their IPO, right? That's yeah. one hell of a part. I mean, the headline is they lost nearly a billion dollars last year, $900 million worth of loss. So the only way that IPO is going to go well is if the investors buy into a story of Lyft's very, very large growth opportunity. In other words, Lyft is going to grow uh, north of 50% as far as the eye can see. They can make that case, and they're going to have a highly successful IPO. And if they can't, it's going to be a rough And And so that's, a, that's you know, for MindBody, we went public growing about 40. We're earning about 20. And so that, that really harmed us in our IPO. And uh, the month after our IPO, the stock actually came out at, at uh, closed the first day at like $13 and change. By the end of 30 days later, we're trading at $9. It means we had an enterprise value of about $350 million. And I was lying in bed at night, staring at the ceiling, going, oh my God, I just screwed up. Uh, and of course, my, my board and my advisors and, and the pre IPO investors were so great. They, they gave me such encouragement. They said, look, Rick, this is just a flip. Matters is a long-term. In the near term, but one investor said to me, uh, said, look, public markets have the emotional maturity of a teenager. Um, and uh, your, your stock price on any given day makes about as much sense as the outcome of a junior high school class president election. Um, but in the long term, Market is a very efficient weighing machine. Weigh the quality of your vision, your strategy, and your execution. And uh, and I think that has turned out to be true. So my only therapy was that uh, 45 days after IPO, brief window after our first earnings call, I was able to buy my own stock. And uh, uh, I uh, I didn't realize that, that actually was a what's called a form four window. When the officer of a corporation trades their own stock, it is dues, right? You have to file this with the SEC, and people following your business are going to get this report. But I didn't realize when I bought my own stock, it actually rallied the stock. And so that actually stopped the slide of the stock, and then stock started started going up again. Wow. And so did that, boy, did that feel good. Uh, but that wasn't actually my intention. Actually, a couple of board directors bought the stock also. And uh, we, we went to a uh, software technology conference, Pacific Crest conference. And uh, the covering analyst said to me, thank you for doing that. That was a, great, was a brilliant move. I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was just therapy. I was like, this company is worth at least double what the mark, public markets are saying. So to me, it was a pretty damn safe bet. And I told right. my wife, if it went down again, below $10, I, I was going to sell the Tesla and I'll buy more stock. Nice, nice. So, so let me ask you this, Rick. At what point do you decide it might make sense to consider doing an acquisition and to explore options? So you mean us being acquired, or you mean that we, we of course, did you guys, acquisitions, the acquirer? Yeah, I know, but you guys being acquired. Yes. So I had considered that as all along, I said, you know, if we get to a place where 
the public markets are just not benefiting either through access to capital or, or through our, our, our market cap, then we should be open to strategic opportunities. So I've had that attitude and our boards had that attitude and any healthy public CEO and board should have that attitude. That's our fiduciary responsibility. And we are here, we are here for our shareholders and, and uh, we are here for the good, long-term good of the company. So we did some significant acquisitions of our own last year. And I thought the market would really rally behind us with that. We, we, we acquired our largest competitor in Salon and Spa, a company named Booker. And that came with it, uh, this really sharp AI-enabled small business marketing system called Frederick. And so that was a two-for-one for us. And then we, we also acquired a, a fitness technology business called Fitmetric. Both of these acquisitions long-term are very accretive to our future, but, but there's a lot of near-term cost and, and frankly, uh, focus dilution while the team is, is integrating these, these acquisitions. You know, you're merging product roadmaps, you're integrating teams, you're integrating business systems. And frankly, we underestimated how hard that was going to be. It caused us in the back half of 2018 to have two misses in a row. We were supposed to, the street had us at 64 million in revenue in Q3, and we only did 63.8. And for that sin, we lost about, about $400 million in market. And uh, we also guided down because it, we realized as we started unpacking these acquisitions, well, there's a lot of work to do here. And we need to, there's, there were revenue streams that weren't going to be long-term sustainable. Let's unwind those revenue streams because they're diffusing our energy right now. Um, and synergies that we are hoping for are going to take longer than we thought. So while this is happening in the fall, um, the, the potential acquirers see that as an opportunity. So we started getting a, a significant inbound interest. So there were multiple people interested. We met with um, a large number of them. I mean, these are these are really robust meetings, typically four to five hours in length. Um, and you're going very deep in the business. They're signing an NDA, so they're, they're getting access to information that isn't public yet. And we were working hard to to create a competitive process because board agreed on two things. And, and that was number one, that if we're going to consider selling the company, we want to get top dollar. for it. Uh, and number two, we want to have options. You know, we don't want to have just one, one person buying. It's like, if you're going to sell your house, you don't, you don't have to show it to one interested party. And uh, Vista then came, came in Vista equity partners with a, an offer uh, right before Christmas. Uh, they they came in with a thirty-five. This is all public information. They came in with thirty-five dollars, and we pushed back hard. We, we were hoping to get close to forty, not over forty. Uh, at the same time, the markets that were getting is especially difficult. And in Q4, late Q4, you know there was some really serious warning signs that that, that we might be ending in, entering a, a really bad bear market. 19. Now, so far to date, as you know, right now it's the 8th of March, uh, the markets have actually been pretty, pretty good uh, in, in the first quarter of 19, but who knows what's coming. But at the time, you know, the third week of December, go back and look at the chart of NASDAQ um, and remember what we 
were looking at. So we were looking at that saying, well, you know, if we try to hold out here, we could give, if we wait weeks, see if there'll be uh, better competing offers, um, we might never see this offer again. That's, of course, the, the hard game of buying and selling things. Yeah. And uh, it was clear to us that this offer may not be there in January. Right. And so, so we voted on December 23rd. And uh, it was an emotional moment for me because you, you, uh, you cannot have a 100% certainty of what's going to happen. Um, Actually, take it back. We voted on the twenty-first, and to to accept, and then we signed the definitive agreement with Vista on the twenty-third, and then we announced on Monday, December twenty-fourth, Christmas Eve. Um, an unfortunate timing, but that's an SEC law. You have to announce on the next business day. So, yeah, it was a it was an emotional uh, big uh, big moment, but we we knew that this was an excellent price. That there was a very low probability that our stock would get back to the mid 30s or above in the next year. But frankly, probably two or three years, given the hard work we're doing on the business right now to, to upgrade our products, to expand our reach, to develop our consumer marketplace, to integrate our recent acquisitions. We've got a lot of work to do. Yeah. And, and we need to roll up our sleeves on that. And we were constraining our work because we were also under pressure. From our investors to get profitable. Got it. So, yeah. what was the uh, what was the total value of the of the transaction? One point nine billion. Got it. I mean, who would have thought, right? When you were starting out of your garage to sell the business for one point nine, yeah. So, what yeah, what yeah. what was it like uh, the day that you closed the deal for you? You you were mentioning that it was emotional. I mean, I can't imagine uh, after all those well, years. Well, the day of the date of signing was the emotional day. It, it's it's just emotional. It's hard to explain the emotion, except, uh, you know, I, I I'll, I'll tell you, I, I wept. It was it, not because I was sad, but it's just it's so incredibly emotional. And um, and at the same time, very excited about the next chapter and the opportunity. I've heard a lot of good things about Vista. Um, I'd also heard some things that weren't good about Vista. And uh, so you have a certain amount of unknown and, and technically, by the way, and this is really important for people to know as a public CEO, I wasn't even allowed, nor were they allowed to have any discussion about my employment or my compensation, other than there was an agreement not to touch our 2019 compensation. That was every mind body employee was guaranteed that that, that would change in 2019. There was no, um, no promise or discussion of so you have it, it's a bit of a leap of faith, and I'm not done yet at Mind Body, and I'm very passionate about what we're going to accomplish in the next few years. So uh, if I had to have a certain amount of faith that these people are firing us, uh, want me around, and and align with our vision. And I'm very happy to report uh, now that the deal is closed, that closed on February 15th. Very happy to report that we are, in fact, highly aligned. They're incredibly excited about us. They, uh, they want me to stick around as long as possible. Uh, they, they appreciate my leadership, and they uh, only want to help us go faster. Their largest question is, how do you accelerate? How do we get this consumer marketplace uh, igniting, going faster than it is?
And how do we uh, increase our, our business customer base? And that begins with greater investments in product technology, and it includes greater investments in our go-to-market team, our sales and marketing and customer services. And they're willing to make those near-term investments in a way that we could not have as a public. One of, one of the ironies of being public was we've never had greater access to capital um, and been more restricted in our ability to spend it. So, so Rick, now the um, I typically ask this question to um, to the guests that we have uh, on the show, and that is knowing what you know now. If you could go to the past and give yourself advice, advice before you were launching a business, what would that advice be, and why? Before I was launching a business. Let's say uh, you're going back in time and you're about to launch your, your first business. You know, after all this remarkable experience, what would that piece of advice that you would give your younger self? Spend the money on a good lawyer. And, and uh, I know that doesn't sound very inspiring. <laughs> but but uh, when a group of people come together, two people or more, to create a business, there's enormous enthusiasm. There's enormous positive energy. and Lawyers are like dentists, and you'll either spend a little bit on preventive care and checkups and cleanings, or you're going to have a root canal later. And Blake and I, unfortunately, did not craft our partnership agreement with an eye towards what would happen if we ever wanted to break up. By the way, Blake is back now. And one of the great joys of my life is that we were able to reunite and he's called the Mind Body Evangelist, and he does some special projects like our, our user group community. But because we didn't have a clearly crafted agreement, when he decided to leave, didn't want to uh, work full time on this anymore, I wanted to go do something else. We had no mechanism for for transitioning control, and we were in effect equal owners, and it led to a a power struggle that um, was very painful took us years to heal from because we had been close friends before. So hire that lawyer who has experience with startups to help you think through these things. A few thousand dollars of, of preventive care will prevent a nasty dispute later because then it's written down. It says if one partner wants to leave, for example, then this is what's going to happen to ensure that the others that are stick that are staying with it left holding the ball are have control because they should. They're going to continue to, to work hard. I think that's a that's about it. Uh, that's a good one. And yeah. That's a good one for sure, Rick. So what is the best way for folks that are listening to reach out and say hi? The best way to reach out and say hi? Well, my email address is pretty easy to, to, to guess. It's my first name at mindbodyonline.com or URL. Um, we, uh, uh, on social media, you know, I, I tweet from time to time. Uh, but the truth is, if you try to send me a personal message, I'm not probably not going to respond. Just because I get a lot of them, and not all of them are, are you know, it's not an effective way uh, to communicate. So, yeah, just shoot me an email. I hear you. Well, Rick, it has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. My pleasure, Alejandro. I, I, great experience. Thank you. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.